This morning, we're starting a new uh, study on Christian community. Uh, what makes Christian community different from any other community? That's a question that I've asked myself often. Uh, is Christian community just friendship, like friends, like Joey, Chandler, Rachel? You know, is it just them plus Jesus? Is that what Christian community is? A group of people that love to hang out and, and faithfully, you know, put off their jobs to hang out in a coffee? Is, is it that, but you just add a little Jesus sauce into it? Is Christian community just an activist group, a, a group of people who are committed to doing something really great in the world, plus a few doses of prayer? Is that what makes Christian community different? Is it, is it parties, like people who can throw really good parties and hang out and have fun and be nice, plus just a little bit of concern for the kingdom of God? What makes Christian community different? And that's the question that I want us to be thinking about all summer, uh, because I believe Christian community, uh, the church, uh, what we experience in fellowship with one another is on a completely different plane beyond all relational spheres that we encounter in this world. Uh, it is not just an, an organization plus spirituality. It's not just a, a business or an institution with the, that's just the good one. I believe Christian community is completely different than any other uh, sphere that we encounter in this world. And that Christian uh, community, the fellowship of saints, operates on a completely different set of commands, convictions, and purposes beyond anything else we encounter in this world. Uh, it is not just friends plus Jesus sauce. That it's actually the Christian community is the, the truth about Jesus at the very center of it, Christ himself, and that changes how we relate to one another in a way that uh, really, I think, you know, organizational coaches and gurus and leadership textbooks and all that, they just kind of dream of the thing that Christian community is. Uh, and far too often, I believe we kind of settle for feeble attempts of community. Sometimes we, we settle for passive-aggressive community, like the ones that we experience out there in the world. We settle for uh, niceness, you know, like Christian communities where we're all nice and, uh, and pretty and, and cute and, you know, pleasant. Uh, far too often we settle for that when really what the New Testament describes is, is a group of people bound together, not by a common interest, not by uh, a common, you know, cause, but bound together by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is completely different. And so this summer, we're going to be doing a study on that, and we're going to be reading throughout the whole New Testament. It's like doing a tour of the New Testament. If you go to, you know, the LACMA, the, the muse, art museum, and you're like, we're going to go to the Picasso room, and then we're going to go to the Monet room, and then we're going to go to that other, like that weird art that's like the haunted house room, if you've ever been there. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jess has been there. I'm glad that one hit you. Yeah, that's good. Uh, but we're going to do like that, except our little tour is going to be through the writings of Paul, of James, of Peter, of the writer of Hebrews, and John. Uh, all like kind of going through because these writers in the like 30 years after Jesus died and rose again were leading these communities and, and experiencing the grace of the church uh, and they were writing out, this is what it actually means. And these are the commands, these are the convictions, this is the purpose of Christian community. So we're going to take a tour through all of those different uh, things and what they wrote about community. And we're going to start with, with John today. And as we do all this, I think we're going to gain an awareness 
of what God is actually doing in us, I think sometimes you have to do this kind of study to be, oh, that's what makes this so special. That's why when I think of, uh, of leaving it or missing it or, or not seeing that person, that's why it aches so much. It's because of, of what God has actually done. And so I hope we'll gain an awareness of what God is doing in us, but also an awareness of what God's calling us into. What does it mean when we say, yeah, I want to be part of this missional community. I want to be part of this church. Uh, what, is, what is that? And I hope we actually understand those things from the Bible, not from uh, drawings that I could do, right? Uh, and so I pray that we're going to walk through that uh, into more and more obedience. Uh, but as I said, we're starting with John, and we're starting with uh, the kind of umbrella command that hangs over the whole New Testament, which is that we ought to love one another. And so it's from John, or 1 John 4, uh, 7 to 12, and I'm going to read it for us now. It says this, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is God's word. It starts by saying this command that we ought to love one another. Uh, I think everybody agrees we should love each other. I think if you went out there into the, the mean streets of Los Angeles and you said, you know what, we should love one another, I don't think anyone's going to be like, what are you talking about, man? Like, get out of here. That's crazy talk. We all think that we should love one another. I mean, love is painted on our, the, the walls and murals at our kids' schools. It's uh, put on uh, all sorts of posters all around town. Like, love is kind of like, that's what we should be doing. Uh, some say we should love because it's nice. Loving is nice. <laughs> this is a fun experiment. Uh, it's working. You can barely hear her. It's amazing. Uh, we, <laughs> it's all cool. He'll be fine. If you go back there, he'll be worse. You should stay over here. I'm serious. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I'll do. Uh, some people say we should love because it's nice. Uh, that's, uh, it's the nice thing to do. That's what you tell little kind kids, you know, just love each other, just be kind. Uh, love because it's nice. Some people will say, well, we should love because it's right. That's just the right thing to do. We don't know why, but we've just kind of decided we live in this culture where we say loving other people is the right thing to do. Uh, then others might say, well, we just love because it's love, as if it's, it's this inalienable, inherent right that people ought to receive love and give love, and so that's why we should love each other, because it's what we all deserve is to be loved. Uh, some people would also say that we love people uh, and we love one another because they're worthy of it. You know, like you're at work and someone's like, man, I just love you because you're always saying that funny thing, man, I love it. Or I love you because you always, you know, keep performing and you do the right thing and you show up. I love you. 
or I love pizza, or I love, it's because it's worthy, right? Because it's, it's good enough to receive love. And that's, we should love other people, and we should love each other if we're a group of people that's worthy. Uh, some also might say that we love because it makes the world a better place. If we could all just love, the world would be better. Uh, there were some mid-century apostles, uh, John and Paul and George and Ringo, and they said it this way. They said, love is all we need. Love, love, love is all we need. All you need is love, love, love. And that's it. It's just this, like, that's the anthem. If you, like, that's all that's necessary for us. So what happens if this is your motivation? Like, what happens for you and for us if one of those things is why you love other people in community? Like, how does that get played out over time? If you love people because it's nice, because it's right, uh, because love is just love, because you're worthy of love, uh, because it changes the world. If that's, you get in a group of people and you're like, that's why I'm gonna love you. What happens? This is, I would love to hear what you think. What happens if that, if that goes out? Go for it, William. Oh, sorry. Like everything will break down. It's like, we can be terrible. Like, you know, someone's not always funny, always yeah, because if you're like, well, I'm going to stop loving you. Yeah, yeah, there was that time you showed up super late for coffee. I'm done loving you. <laughs> what were you going to say, Josh? I was just going to say that the definition of love for form is always going to change. Right? The person who is endeavoring to love someone gets to decide what love looks like. Yeah. And what behaviors are loving behaviors. Yeah. Since there's no universal standard in this set of motivations, it's you're just working out your preferences on other people. Yeah, totally. Yeah, go for it, Matt. Um, I think another reason why people might love, or say they like behind a lot of these things, is the desire to be loved themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think if people are loving in a certain way, it can become more transactional. Like, I'm loving you so you can love me back. Yeah. And when that doesn't happen, you know, there's broken relationships and things like that. Totally. That's really good. Yeah, you love other people so that they love you back, and if they don't, then that breaks the whole thing. Yeah, Jess? Uh, I think this is cause for great anxiety like within a group of people. Mm. If that's how you're going to love, there's no safety. Or from your own experiences, it can become very traumatic. Yeah. To be in a group and have this kind of transactional love, when something breaks down, it causes more trauma for people already experienced that. It just perpetuates itself. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like what William said, but <clears throat> being about the civil rights movement and like, what do you do when you have to love people that don't respond to your love of love but with hate, right? How do you, how could you possibly keep that movement going mm. if it was dependent on what you got back from people or even, even like the noble idea of like, well, it makes the world a better Mm. Then there's also the reality that the world comes against you and maybe doesn't even want what you have to offer. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah, it all kind of breaks down eventually, doesn't it? I think, at least. That's, you know, obviously I set it up for you to think that way. But I think it all really does kind of eventually break down and deteriorate because who has the strength to do that? And often, too, people will say, to, to Matt's point of, 
you know, I would really be able to love other people in this community if they would love me first. Because then I would have this source of love to then love you back. But because nobody else is like performing love well enough on me, like I can't love everyone else. I, there, often it's what I hear. It's like, well, nobody is pursuing me. Nobody is reaching out to me. Nobody is caring for me. So therefore, I can't care for anyone else. I can't step into that love. Uh, but, but John offers a completely different reason than all of the ones that I just me- mentioned. Jesus tells, or John tells us why we should love one another. Uh, he uses this word for. He says, dear friends, let us love one another in verse 7. For, which is like because, uh, it's the why. He says, because love comes from God. Why should we love one another? Because it's from God. Uh, When you know God, he says, when you receive the love of God, you love those around you. That's where the command is given to us that we love each other because somehow we've come to know him and know his love. Uh, When you know God and when you receive him, that's how you begin to love. Why? Uh, Because that's who God is. God is the purpose behind it. He's the central actor, the motivator, the source of love uh, from you to any other person. Uh, there is no, uh, there's no internal source for you. It's all external, and it's all from, from God. He, as he describes it here, it's, it's, that, it's that God is so intensely tied to the reality of love, that it, it's so interwoven into who God is, the reality of love and him is so closely connected that it's impossible to love anyone else without first receiving love from him. You're not capable, you're not able, you just can't, and no one else is. But when you're reborn by his love, when you encounter his love, when you know him, you must then love others. Why must you love others? Why is that command? It's even this kind of freedom command. Why do you do that? Because it's who you've become. You've become the vessel of love. Uh, One of the things that I I love about... um, uh, in Portland, living there was just this uh, was huge beer culture. It was pretty great. It was fun. Traveling around to different breweries all over the world, even. I love that uh, they have all of these strange glasses everywhere. Some glasses are boots. Uh, some glasses, if you go to Hop Dotty, it's this like grail. Has anyone ever got, it's huge. It's like so heavy. Uh, and you're like, it'll be less heavy when I'm, and it's still heavy when it's empty. What I love about all of, there's all these different glasses, and I think if you saw one just on the street, you'd be like, I don't know what that glass is. It's just a really strange grail at Hop Dottie. But then it becomes a beer glass. Why does, when does it become a beer glass? When does the boot become a beer glass? When, when beer is poured into it, right? And then all of a sudden, oh, it's a glass. That's what it is for you. We're wandering around. We don't know who we are or what we are. But then when God pours his love into us, when we know God, when we encounter him, we become who we were always meant to be, which is objects of God's love filled with God's love. To know God is to know the self-giving, sacrificial, never-ending, loving kindness of God. That's what it is to know God. Uh, To encounter him is to encounter a love that drives out all fear or jealousy or arrogance or manipulation. It drives out all greed, all insecurity. That's what it does within you. Why do we love one another in community? I'm just going to be repetitive like John. Because God is love. And that's an unchangeable reality. God isn't about to, because it's so tied to who he is, about to stop being love. 
Like, that, that's not who he is. He's incapable of changing that. It's an unmovable conviction for God. And if, and if you thought, well, maybe God might change his orientation of, of loving the world, uh, you, all you have to do is look back through thousands and thousands of history where God is consistently, faithfully love. Like, that is who he is. It's an unmovable conviction. Uh, God is love is beyond even uh, our fellow community members' merit. There's nothing. You see how this works? There, there's nothing that each of you could do that's going to change the fact that God is love. Therefore, we love one another even when those don't deserve it, even when they uh, aren't loving us back. It's so much more beyond the ideal of love itself because it's in the nature of who God is. We love one another because love comes from God. Then John uh, kind of begins to explain how does that actually happen? How does love get inside us like that? Uh, Because that's that's all great sentiment. But then he he goes on further. In verse 9, he says, uh, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He says, this is how God has showed his love among us. Uh, this, this is, I think, just fascinating because he's talking about and he's making something very clear for us that, that he's about to say, this is how God demonstrates his love. This is how we get to see his love. This is how we get to see his, the impression of his love. It's how the reality of who he is is made manifest in our world, in our history, in our lives. That's what this phrase, showed his love, means. It means that, that God has a character, and then these actions are just a reflection of his character. That his character is love. It's not that he does love. It's, it's who he is. And so he's like, and this is how we see his love. This is how we see his handiwork and his markmanship, right? It's just like when you see paintings, you're like, that's a Van Gogh painting. I can tell because he put himself into it, right? This is what he's, this is, it's not Van Gogh himself, like that self-portrait. Like we, no one's walking around the museum and being like, that's Van Gogh literally. We know that. We know it's a, a demonstration of his love. And that's what Paul is, or John is saying right here. It's like, this is how he showed his love. These actions are not his love, but they reveal it. And where is he going to reveal that love? How has he revealed it? Where where is the context of that? Where do we have to go to see his love? And he says, among us. He revealed his love among us. This is how he showed it among us. This is how we've all become witnesses of, of the divine, of the transcendent character of God. It's in these actions Uh, This is how God's invisible attribute, how his love was made visible among us. God's love is not a theory because we've seen it. We've touched it. We can, it's it's been appeared to us, among us. Love is not a concept. Uh, God's love has been shown through the vocal cords, the dusty feet, uh, the chapped hands, the eyes, the person of Jesus, the one and only son who came into this world that we might live through him. How has God made his love uh, visible among us? Like that we all get to see. It's like we all went to the same show and we saw it together. And it was God coming into this world in Jesus, the one and only son who did all of this so that we might be alive through him. God's made love made tangible. And this is what I think we need to understand about God's love. 
that he has an unrelenting desire and resolve to restore, to redeem, and to resurrect all humanity. That he has this unwavering, unrelenting resolve to restore, to redeem, and to resurrect. He created us for so much more in this life than what we experience, and he will bring that life to us. That's what Paul is saying. This is how he showed his love to us, that he came that we might live. Now, verse 10, he says this, this is love. This is love. Not that we love God. It's as if John's like, now that would be silly, right? If we found our definition of love and what we do to God. It's like, that doesn't make sense. Like, that's not it. This is what it is. Uh, No, this is love. That God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now we're getting to the very center of it all. Like, what is God's love? Okay, we're supposed to love each other because he is love and, and he showed his love to us. And then now John is just getting right to the center of it. This is the love that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Atoning sacrifice. It's an act that makes us well, this atoning sacrifice. Atonement, the whole of scriptures is this beautiful thing that uh, our legal system tries to understand, the education system tries to understand of of what is this thing that, that God does to make people well, this atoning sacrifice. There's many layers to it. Typically, you might hear about it this way, uh, that we sin, that you sin, that you sinned against the living God. And just like any relationship, when you break a bond of trust and unity and peace, that there's a big fracture in a relationship, right? And that, and that something has to be done to repair that fracture. Uh, you might even have heard, or a really great example is if, if you wreck into somebody else's car, like you crash into them. I do this far too often. I, I hit people's rear ends. Uh, of the car. Thanks. Uh, And you can't, and this doesn't happen to me, but you you crash into someone and you can't pay the damage. But the other person, their car is messed up. And they need some, somebody has to pay to fix that car. And the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is is the person that comes and says, you know what, I'm going to pay to fix both cars so that you two can be right with one another. And the idea of atonement is that that we have messed up and destroyed and fractured our relationship and our access to God. And Jesus, the perfect one, the blameless one, the one that has this incredible resource in himself, he dies in our place, taking on all of our sins so that we can be restored back to God. So that there's nothing in between. There's no more guilt. There's no payment that has to be done. And so now we get to go and embrace God. And that is part of the atoning sacrifice. That's part of it. That's pretty good, right? I heard an amen. But you might also hear that atonement is not just that God is taking your sin and and making amends with with God. But Jesus uh, is taking the sin and pushing it so, so far away. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, uh, the people of Israel would gather two uh, perfect lambs together, and they would put the sins of the people on both lambs, and one they would send way out into the middle of nowhere, and the other one that would be a sacrifice. And so atonement was a two-goat thing. It was a two-sheep thing. Uh, You had to have two. It wasn't just the one that died. It was the one that went far away, because that's the sins being taken 
far, far away. And what we see in Jesus' life and then his death is that it's not just that Jesus' death is a, is a making amends between us and God as an atoning sacrifice, but also Jesus is that other lamb that has, takes on the sins of all of us and goes into the grave and your sins are buried there so that there, there's no more shame for you. That was the whole purpose, that you would now have this uh, a freedom from, from the sin that you've done, and it would be taken away, and now there's forgiveness for it all. And the only thing that comes out of the grave is the new life resurrection of Jesus. The sins stay, and the sins are buried, no more, not visible, as far as the east is from the west, beyond all understanding or seeing, your sin is gone. That's part of the atoning sacrifice and the love of God. That's how he showed his love to you. But then there's this other part, too, that it's not just that uh, you, God made an amends for you, like that Jesus makes amends, so now you have a right relationship with God. It's not just that your sins are buried, but it's also that God is making you free. He's making you free. He frees you from the tomb itself. Because the scriptures say, and it makes pretty clear, that, that because you've sinned, not only are you dis- you know, disconnected with God, not only do you carry all this guilt and shame, but you're also dead. It's what Paul says, like you're dead in your sins, immovable. And the atoning sacrifice of Jesus is not just that you have, you know, that your sins were buried, but you yourself died and you were raised out of the bondage of the tomb itself. When the tomb is rolled away, he brings you out of captivity with him. You brought into the light of grace and of love, and now you're part of life, not just in a tomb anymore. But uh, that's pretty great. That's part of it. That's three things that this is it's a packed thing. That's why he just threw these two words in there. He's like, now unpack those words to understand the depth of God's love. But also... It's not just all of those things, and not just that you're free from the bondage of guilt and sin and death, but his sacrifice itself makes you whole. So the the big part of it is like, all right, now I'm okay with God. Now I'm not dead. Now my sins are buried, but now I'm just walking around. Now, Now what's gonna happen to me? And what the atoning sacrifice is, it makes you whole. It makes you who you were always meant to be because you are intended to be the loved recipient, like the recipient, the beloved, the person who accepts and knows God. That's who you were always meant to be, a container of God's love. That's what he means in verse nine when he says that he sent his one and only son that we might live through him. Not just, man, God did all of this stuff through Jesus's death and resurrection, now we're back at neutral. And now we just get to like try to make the most of this life, like a second chance. You know, like now we have our freedom, so now we get to move on. It's like Shawshank Redemption, you know, they, they, I'm going to spoil the movie a bunch, but it's hella old, so y'all should all know it or watch it. At the end of Shawshank Redemption, these two guys that have been in prison forever, one wrongfully accused, one rightfully accused, they both finally get out and they meet at this tree and they receive tons and tons of gold. Right? Like that's the like riches and riches to like live this abundant life and freedom. Because it's not just that they got out of captivity, but they were given the wealth, right? 
In the scriptures, in the gospel, God's love, his atoning sacrifice doesn't just get you out of bondage, but it brings you into the treasure of eternal life with God. What Jesus described throughout the gospel of John as abundant life. That's what you get. But there's more. I feel like a commercial person. And I, and I, honestly, how wonderful it is for us to just talk about these things as if they were ideas. Like th- just to talk about this kind of love, this story of God's love, that'll, just to talk about it, to hear it, to be like, what a lovely story. Like that alone is amazing. But just think about the privilege it is to hear and receive and to talk about this love that's true. Like that's an amazing thing. And this is the the truth that happens, that we see that's among us. But this is what's more. And this is the last thing about the atoning sacrifice. It says here in verse 10 that it's an atoning sacrifice for who? For our sins. For our sins. Not for my sins. Not for your sins. But for our sins. It's for us. For us collectively. This is how God's shown his love among us. It's how we've seen it. It's how we've received it. That it wasn't just my sins put in the tomb. It wasn't just my sins put on the cross. It's not just me that's become a vessel of God's love. It's all of us. And here's what that means, that when you're sitting in a living room after you've had a really wonderful meal uh, with your missional community, uh, or when you're on a prayer walk around the neighborhood with people in your community, or when you're serving the poor, or when you're arguing with someone over text in your community, like like, that happens, or when you're hurt, or when you're tired, or when you're broken with others in community, or when you're visiting the hospital of someone that you love because God's put his love in you, or when you're delivering a meal to a new person uh, that that had a baby just recently, that's the new person. You're doing all of that, all of those scenarios are happening with the people whose sins have been atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus, of the one and only Son, where your sin has been paid for and their sin has been paid for, where their sins have been buried, where they've been brought out of the tomb, where they've been filled with the treasure of abundant life, his love among us, the atoning work is all of that. And when we take communion, we're not just having this private little one-on-one meal with God kind of thing. It's, it's, we're not celebrating a, a personal, individual reality. It's, it's the visible point in which we're saying, see what God's love has done among us, that he has taken the sins of the world and made us alive. That is love. John finishes with this. He says, so friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Why? Because God has loved us. Since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. The love that forgives, love that fights darkness and sin, love that sacrifices, a love that pursues the thriving of others, all of that is because of what I just said. When the majesty of his love comes upon your life, when arrives among us, what else can we do but love one another as he loved us? What else can we do? And then verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God, 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. What happens within Christian communion, this is how it's so different than like a club or a PTA board or Friends TV show. Because what it's saying is that the love of Christian community is so much more than niceness or getting along or having some fun. It's so much more than putting a poster in front of your house that says love is love. While all those things are nice and the sentiment is lovely, what happens within Christian community is that the invisible God is made visible through our love for one another. How do we get to see the imprint and the reflection of God among us? It's in our love for one another, God himself made visible. It says no one's seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us through our life of loving each other. It's like what Jean Valjean says in Les Mis. He says, to love another person is to see the face of God. I think uh, Victor Hugo was just taking it straight from John in the Bible because he's a great Catholic person. He was reading it all the time, and he understood that beautiful moment. Why did Jean Valjean sacrifice so much, put himself out there? Why did he care for other people? Why did you know, he put himself to die so that other people could live? Why? Because to, to love another person is to see the face of God. And then furthermore, in this, same, this last verse, he says, his love is made complete in us. It's through our loving for one another that God's love finds its complete conclusion meaning that the destiny and the purpose of God's love can only find and complete its purpose when it rests on all of us and it works through us. That God's love being poured out is not just that I might know it, like that's, the, the purpose is still incomplete. Like the, the what God is, the, the love that he's pouring out, if I just receive it in this like beautiful cul-de-sac, like that's not the end of his purpose. The only way that God's love finds an end to his purpose is when we love one another. So how would we love differently in our missional communities or in our DNA groups if that's what we understood by love one another? I want us to go and take communion now and, and practice that reality, that his body and his, and his blood given for us as an atoning sacrifice, and as we take and as we eat, knowing that his love has been revealed to us among us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the, the beauty of your cross and resurrection and that these are wonderful things to talk about, but that they're true. It's just uh, overwhelming. God, I pray for us to be a community, a church that loves one another and that over the course of this summer, we would, uh, we would really grow in these, these commands that kind of flow from that. Jesus, I pray that you would bind us uh, by your love, that you would help our motivations shift from being nice or being right to, to just being people that have received your love. Um, thank you, Jesus. Amen.